Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Thanksgiving. There's a lot of you here, so that is uh, awesome. We're in Hebrews, uh, opening up the fourth chapter. Uh, So I'm just going to go ahead and jump in and read that for us. Text says this, starting chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he was somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God, uh, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you draw near to us. Um, we just confess, uh, confess this is a hard text. Uh, and, and yet we need to hear it. So would you draw near? Spirit, come, speak to us. Uh, let us see the beauty that is in this. Let us see the warning uh, that is in this. Let us see the good news that is in this. Lord, would you soften our hearts give us ears to hear uh, the beauty that is in your living and active word, may it work deep in our heart, God. We pray that in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so probably, uh, I think probably 60 years ago, I heard about, for the first time, something that many of you may have strong opinions on. You may love it or hate it, but six years ago, I think I heard about, for the first time, the Enneagram, which is a personality test that describes people uh, in terms of their core motivations and their fears and some internal uh, dynamics as well, and it kind of separates people into nine different personality styles. And uh, the Enneagram's kind of been helpful for me over the last several years because uh, it helps me understand why I am the way I am in certain situations, and it helps me also understand why other people live and act the way that they do in certain situations. And it's also underscored this reality: we are very unique individuals. Uh, we're, we're not the same. It shed light on why I lean into certain conflicts even when I don't want to. It shed light on why some people run from conflicts no matter what. It it has shown why some people chase fun experiences and why uh, some people will help people even up, uh, even to their uh, detriment and why some people are wired for accomplishments. It's just helped me to see why people do things the way that they do. The basics of why it's been helpful is it helps me understand where people are coming from when they live in a way that I would not or when they react in a way that I would not. In life, it's easy to assume 
that people are uh, weird, uh, wrong, mean, or crazy when they enter a situation and they just do something completely opposite uh, than from what you would do. So the Enneagram just kind of helps us understand, okay, this is maybe why people do things the way that they do. They, they may not be all of those things. They may not be mad. They may not be crazy. They may just be wired a little bit differently than I am, and that, that's okay. It can help us to understand where people come from, uh, maybe walk in a little bit of empathy, and if we have some empathy, we can be kinder, uh, even when we don't understand why people would react in a certain way to certain things. So while the Enneagram has been helpful in several ways to me, especially in, in conflict situations, I think it's also started to become, maybe in the last year or two, for the people who really use it a lot, it's also started to become quite harmful in some ways because people uh, have used it to define people instead of understand them. It's to put you in a box and say this is who you are and this is the way you'll always be instead of let me help, let me understand why you do things the way uh, that you do. And, and what it's done when people use it to define people is it basically uh, acts as if people aren't really human anymore. It subdivides people so far into categories that it starts to forget that we're all made in the image of God, uh, that we're wired in certain ways and we have uh, certain needs, uh, and, and it can hurt the way that we relate to other people because we begin to treat them as if they're not human, just like we are, and even more so as if their core needs aren't the same as everyone else's. This idea of kind of subdividing people too far out has been extrapolated by our modern culture and the rise of the individual self in the modern culture as well. Because in our modern culture, it has been preached that people are not the same at a core level. That we decide who we are and that we're all kind of islands unto ourselves. And what the author is pushing in this text is, is a unifying idea. Uh, he's pressing a universal need that all people have. He understands we are not all the same. We do things differently. We have some different tendencies and some different proclivities. And yet we are still the same because we have the same core need inside of us. Mainly what this text is going to press out is no matter how you are wired... You have the core internal need for rest for your soul. It's a deep, innate need. We'll all search for it a little bit differently, but we're going to be searching for the rest that only the creator gives. Augustine said it this way, you have uh, made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Humanity, whether we recognize it or not, we have a deep longing inside. We have a longing for eternity, a longing for uh, the sacred, a longing to connect with and find meaning with and peace in the God of the universe. What Augustine was kind of referencing is that many humans may deny that they need God. They deny that they were created as worshipers to connect with the transcendent. And despite their denial, they can yell it's not true as much as they want. The fact remains they're still wired for it. And so we scour the earth under every rock and every place that we can find to find what our soul needs. And what the author wants to declare in this text is Jesus has what you need. It doesn't matter who you are, how you're wired, what personality preference you are, if you're a type A or type B, if you're a fighter or a fleer, or, it doesn't matter. Christ has what you need because we need the same thing. Nothing else does. Come see and taste the goodness of God. Come find the rest for your soul that you desperately need, that I need. The culture and our minds may tell you that God is trying to steal from you or take from you something good. And the author of Hebrews is reminding you, no, 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 he doesn't want to steal from you. He wants to give you the thing that only he can give you, the rest for your soul that you need and I need. 
Let's set our footing once again so we don't miss the foundational focus. We've worked pretty hard to try and do this because if you don't understand the foundation of Hebrews, it will not make sense to you. A group of believers had come to a tension point in their faith. They came into the faith gladly, claimed Jesus, started following him as their savior. But sometime after their claiming of faith, their walking in the faith, they ran into persecution and oppression and difficulty and trial. In other words, their faith all of a sudden became costly to them, and they feel the cost as it's kind of working itself out in their life. And it's left some of them asking the question, is the benefit worth the cost? Is this, is this really a transaction that I want to stick with, or would I be better off another way? Would life be easier, uh, more joyful, more fulfilling another way outside of Christ? Would life be better without Jesus so I can avoid all the tension that I find as I follow him? Their line of question seems to be asking, what is the path of least resistance? Uh, how can I find the calmest water, the smoothest road? And yet the author of Hebrews rejects that line of questioning altogether, saying you aren't asking the right questions, the ultimate questions. The question should not be what is easier, uh, what feels simpler right now and right here. The question should be where do I get what my soul cries out for? Where do I get what I need? In what place do I find what my soul yearns for? Where can I go to find what I ultimately need? Not where do I go for ease, it's where do I go to meet the needs of my soul? Another way to think of it is the original audience is fearful of the implications of staying with Jesus. Like that may cost me things and it may hurt and it may be difficult. The implications of holding fast to Christ and maintaining a faith in him. But the author says you should fear the implications of missing out on Jesus way more. He's warning them and us. There's a far greater danger out there and it's the danger of missing Christ and missing the ultimate rest that we find in God and God alone. The author isn't trying to diminish the struggle that the original audience has. He's just trying to make sure that the struggle doesn't eclipse the truth, right? He doesn't want them to be blinded to the greater realities. If we make every decision based on what is easiest for me in the moment, the author is showing us that you quite likely will miss the blessings of God. That is not a good path, and that's not a good trade. Uh, the week, um, last week the focus was you're afraid of persecution and hardship in the moment, but you should be more afraid of a hard heart. And this week is you're afraid of persecution and difficulty again, but you should be way more afraid of missing the rest of God that is available to you in Jesus. Again, these are not meant to be scare tactics. He does want to tell you the truth, though. Our, our, our decisions and our lives and our actions and what we throw our faith into, it will have implications into your life. The text opens up by saying, there. For, which means it's hooking itself to what came before and what we saw last week because Israel in the Old Testament had missed out on the rest of God. Many who were set free from Egypt, they never entered the promised land. They never got to enter in. Many who were uh, circumcised in their parts were never circumcised in their hearts. They were never transformed in their hearts despite all of the things that they'd seen. God split the oceans, he brought the plagues, he led them by fire, he rained down manna from the sky over and over and over. He showed his love for their people and they saw all of that and they still missed out on the rest of God. Because of that, therefore, the author says, while the promise of rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. This is a significant verse to the original audience and to us here as well. The author is saying that this rest 
of God. It wasn't just back for them uh, as they were leaving Egypt. It's, it's, it's for us as well. This promise of rest is available to you and I here and right now. This rest, therefore, isn't just a geographic land that some people entered a long time ago. This rest is a prophetic promise of God about salvation and what he gives you and what you can find in him. The promise is to experience the joy of salvation in your life, where you are now, and the hope of entering into this future promised land, this renewed creation later. I hope we can see that there's kind of layers to what the author is showing us in the text. Salvation benefits aren't just payable upon death. Yes, they are, but there's also some blessings and rest and beauty that you can walk in in Christ right here and right now. And this is what the author wants to give you. Hey, there's rest available. I don't know if you feel like you need it, but it's there. And when we fully realize uh, the, the rest that we have, it'll be a beautiful thing because we understand this better King Jesus puts it all back together. He gives us rest here now, and then he gives us ultimate rest later when he recreates and, and fixes all that has been broken. In light of last week's text, there's still an immediacy about this text for us then. If there's layers to it, if there's a layer of rest here and a layer of rest eternal, the author is saying right now today you can experience the rest of God, you can walk in it. Or you can try and find rest in something else. The, the choice is yours. Will you enter the rest of God that he is offering you more and more? Or will you keep turning over rocks all over creation looking for what only God can give you? It's a very clear warning. You're searching and I'm searching. It's part of our internal worship. He says, hey, where are you going to throw that? Where will you throw the, the, the pursuit of your rest into? Into the eternal or into the created order? Into God or other things? Again, he warns us, you should be fearful that you might fail to reach this rest. You may hear that warning and go, man, I don't like that. I don't like that he's doing that. Is that a scare tactic? Is he trying to manipulate us or force us to believe? The author isn't trying to scare you into anything. He's wanting you to have your eyes wide open to what is really true. Choices have consequences. The people of Israel didn't fear missing the rest of God. They assumed that they would get it. This is the core issue. They believed that they just automatically were entitled to inherit the things of God because of their family. This is what we hear in verse 2. The good news came to Israel in the Exodus. They were offered the rest, but the good news and the offer didn't benefit them because they didn't put their faith in the good news that they received. They were given the message, but they decided to turn over rocks and look over, uh, for the rest in other places. This is the issue. Proximity to God and God's blessings do not and were never meant to save you. Because you go to a church or your parents go to church or your best friend goes to church or because you're around an MC does not mean anything if you do not put your faith into the good news. The rest of God and salvation only come from the good news and then having faith in that. We enter rest in the rest of God through faith and faith alone. And this faith isn't empty. It leads to a belief in action. The author wants us to see that the wilderness generation, they heard the promises of God. And they heard the offer of the good news as well. Cognitively, they understood it, but they rejected it in their actions. They did not rest in God's promises. They constantly second-guessed God. They, they constantly uh, were, were disobedient instead. So faith, in, in this way,
They, they did not have faith in the good news because they were constantly second-guessing God. And because of their second-guessing, they would never find the rest of God. The author wants you to know that faith will manifest itself in this way that you believe in your life. And it will cause this heart that believes and trusts God even when things go a little weird. A little bit of a diagnostic test, right? The, the people of, of Israel, they were around the things of God constantly. They saw his hand. They saw his blessings. They saw his work. They saw his love. And yet they missed the rest. What, what can we do with that to kind of diagnose the own heart uh, that we have right now to see if we maybe fall in a pattern that they do? I, I think asking this question is probably pretty helpful. You have to be honest with yourself as you do. A, a diagnostic test to see if you're missing the rest of God and you have a problem with belief or unbelief in the moment probably surfaces it if you would ask this question, are you always frustrated? There's just this deep angst that's always there. Are you always disappointed in someone or something? Do you always feel like a victim or like you've always gotten the short end of the stick or as if it's not fair and it's not good enough and things are always hard and something's always wrong? See, this is what happened to the wilderness generation over and over and over. They felt like no matter what was in their hands, they felt like it wasn't good enough. God literally rained down manna from the sky and they grumbled about it. Right? This constant frustration that boils in the heart for too long and we leave it unchecked in our missional communities, like, I just don't want to deal with that. That's the way they always are. This is a clear manifestation of a lack of faith of God in a hard heart. Their constant disappointment was an accusation against God's goodness. It's this low-level thing. They may not be gutsy enough to say it, but it's a, you're not really good. You haven't done what you should to me. Chronic anger, frustration, disappointment, dissatisfaction is a warning light on the dashboard of your heart, and it's a faith problem. And it will keep you, like the older brother in the prodigal son story, from entering the rest of God if you aren't careful. We can do great things for the kingdom, and we could be servants, and we could show up, and we can tithe, and we could work in kids' class and do all the other things. And if we're always bitter and angry and frustrated, we may be doing all of that while missing the rest of God with a hard heart as we do it. The middle section of the text is one of the most difficult sections of Hebrews. And just be honest about that, it's tricky. So instead of going through it word by word, what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and take points that the author wants to give us from this text and lean into those. So to pull out a point of the text, Joshua was famous in the Old Testament for leading the people into the promised land. So remember the story. The people of God prayed and prayed and prayed, free us, free us, free us. They send Moses. Moses leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years. And there's this promise. I'm going to give you a, a land of milk and honey. You're going to be in a better place. And, and it's going to be this promised land. And it's going to be wonderful. Moses led them out of Egypt. But Joshua was the one who actually led the people into the promised land. He was the one that blazed the trail in, who, who crossed the river with them into the land of Canaan, into that spot. So the author says, if Joshua would have given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on of rest. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So imagine this, you're a son or daughter of the Exodus generation. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. So your parents escaped from Egypt, you were born, you heard, uh, you've heard of this deliverance that's coming and the promise of rest for God's people and this promised land that you're going to get and a new place of blessing and you finally walk into Canaan. 
the promised land after all of these years. And all of you have heard is someday it's going to be good. Someday we're going to find rest. Someday it's going to be wonderful. And you think this promise of rest is complete. The moment that you step across the river, you think it's finished. This physical land is the full promise of God. This new place is the place of peace. There's fertile ground. Our crops are going to grow. Uh, we're not going to be oppressed and we're not going to be slaves here. Uh, we're going to do well. We're going to grow fat. This is going to be like heaven on earth. This is amazing. It's perfect. This is the full culmination of everything that we were promised. But the author says that God spoke of another day after this, another rest. What is he saying? Hey, that's not the full promise. There's something else. The better rest than Joshua delivered, the point is another will deliver to God's people later. This means that the land of, of Canaan, this beautiful land, was God, not God's highest goal for his people. Even in the Old Testament, his highest goal is that by faith his people would enter into eternal heavenly rest in him. Catch us, the one who would bring them into this new rest. Remember, hey, there's still a, a promise of rest that you can go into. That's not all. The promise of who will bring them into this rest is a better Joshua. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. The whole thing points to him. Even the leader who walked them in, who, who, who pointed them into the promised land, who brought them into this thing that they prayed and prayed and prayed and saw plagues and the ocean split in 40 years and manna and fire and all of this stuff. The guy that entered that in, them into that, they're going, hey, there's a much better leader coming. This detail may give you a fresh glimpse into the entire Bible narrative. It all points to Jesus. Many think that the Old Testament and New Testament are like oil and water. They're incompatible. They're incongruent. God's angry here and then nice here. And it, it, that, that's not what happens. The whole Bible is filled with the story of redemption that promises of Jesus. From the proto-evangelium when, when in Genesis when, when there's this, this message about this one who's going to come that will, that will crush the snake's head. That's Jesus to the one who will wipe all of our tears away in Revelation. That's also Jesus. It's all about him. Everything points to him. It foreshadows him. It predicts him. Even the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land following Joshua pointed to the better rest that would come from the better Joshua, who is Christ. Into the newly restored heavens and earth that, will, that he will lead his people into. How Jesus will lead us into the ultimate rest that the first Joshua could never offer us. Hear me. The underlying question becomes this for them and for us though. Which Joshua will you follow? Will you follow the one who brings you into a comfortable life in the moment, that Joshua? Let's be honest, that sounds appealing, right? A comfortable life, land of milk and honey, ease. Will you follow that one? Will you follow the path uh, that, that this Joshua puts you on? The path of ease? Or will you follow the better Joshua? the Christ who offers you something much better, that message would have slammed into the original audience. Why? Because they're thinking about leaving Jesus, remember? The tension is oppression and difficulty and hardship is coming. Would life be better without Jesus? The author goes, hey, what Joshua do you want to follow? Do you want to have a simple life or do you want to have the eternal rest for your soul? Because if you leave Jesus, you leave the rest as well. You will not get the rest of God. Remember, he's the door, he's the gate, he's the path, he's the bread of life, he's the water that will satisfy. It's all him. We cannot enter the rest of Christ without, without we cannot enter the rest of God without Christ. With act, active faith in him that manifests itself in obedience. And here's the hard part. To walk down that path isn't the easiest path you will find. 
That's his message. This prosperity gospel, we've done really good at the people who tell you you're going to be rich all the time and say, hey, that's not in the Bible. We have also infused this other idea that maybe life will be easier than it actually is. I hope you hear the loud question, do you want temporary physical rest or do you want something better that lasts forever? This is the decision facing them. It's probably the question that we face every time we hit a tension point in our faith as well. The author is going to say, when things get hard, dig your heels in. Here's the propensity. What do we feel like doing when things get hard? We feel like running. And the author says, don't do it. Don't do it. Why? Because it's the only place that you find rest is staying with Christ. And this message that is troubling in Hebrews to some of us, it's clear about it. It's only those who persevere till the end that are the fathers and will find his rest. The text points out that God the Father rested on the seventh day. The other major point that we want to pull out of this text. Right, in creation account, seventh day he rests. And we need to look at that for a moment for this. God didn't rest because he's tired. Right, the, the, the eternal God didn't kind of get worn out and, and, and need to have a breather or a break. He didn't need a, a Netflix binge day to, to, to kind of soothe his heart. He didn't need a way, uh, day away at the ocean with friends. He didn't need comfy clothes to, to kind of recuperate from all the hard work that he did. He rested not because he was tired. He rested because the work was complete. That's different. Remember what he says this in Genesis. It is good. It is very good. This type of rest is completely different. This type of rest comes not out of being weary, but out of being satisfied. It's done. The rest that comes in knowing that nothing else needs to be done, that it is complete, that it is perfect the way that it is. A rest in co- that comes in knowing I don't have anything left to do tomorrow. The text says then that there remains a Sabbath rest, this type of rest that God had for us for the people of God. This rest is still available to you and me. Like God rested after creation, he offers us this type of rest here and now. What does that mean? Like how do, how, how do we, how do we kind of handle that? Well, many people think that uh, they have a lot of opinions about Sabbath and it's a great thing to talk about actually. Some still believe that Sabbath is a 24 hour period where we lay aside any work some think that uh, the New Testament switched Sunday uh, to the Sabbath, that the day of gathering is what it means uh, to, to Sabbath properly, where you stop the work and the pursuits that you have, right? The whole Sunday fun day, you're going to have Sunday worship day, and, and you worship the God of all creation. While both of those are good, and we see elements of those all over the, the Bible, even the land needs to rest, so we need to rest as well. And we do see later in Hebrews, do not neglect gathering together. They just call that being Christian, not necessary Sabbath, though. Right here, the author's talking about a different Sabbath, though. A rest. A rest from the constant work that you and I try and do to save ourselves and make ourselves lovable. This is the rest that he offers. Notice the text says that a Sabbath rest is available now so that we can rest. The same way God didn't need to do more because creation was complete, we cannot need to do more because a different work has already been completed by Christ. The author's pointing us at the completion of Christ's work on the cross. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was saying something beautiful. He wasn't just saying, I'm dead now. He was declaring that he had done the impossible, that he had finished the way to salvation 
that he had paid the penalty for our sins, that he had emptied the cup of God's wrath, that he had fulfilled the obedience that you and I cannot and will not be able to do. It is finished. He has accomplished all of it. The work is done. God offers us the ability to rest and that we don't need to try and save ourselves anymore. There are some of you, not all of you. I wish as a pastor at certain times I could say, you need to hear this and maybe you don't, but there's some that can't seem to find peace in their heart no matter how hard they try. They always think there's more that they have to do, more that they have to figure out, more that they have to learn, more evangelism that they need to uh, kind of progress in, more holiness, more in their resume, more Bible to read, more discipline to instill. You're kind of the biblical persona of Martha. You just can't stop working. You're constantly fighting the the demon of self-hatred and shame through trying to work it off by believing if I just do the next step and the next step and the next step, I'll feel better about who I am. And because you can't stop working, you cannot enjoy Christ. Why? Because you're too busy trying to work for him to make him love you. You cannot rest in what he's done because you always feel like you need to do more. You need to be more. You need to be better. Your heart can't find rest in Christ's work because you can't see it's complete. It's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. All the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament was a shadow pointing to a greater reality, that God's people can stop their work because Jesus has done the work fully for them. It's an invitation to slow down sometimes and understand you don't have to be better. Christ is the better Joshua, done the better work already, just believe in it. That's the beauty when we come to the table later, that's what you're doing. Help me find that rest for my soul. Your body and your blood have been broken and shed for me. The work is done. Let me believe it. Let me understand it. Let me see it. Let me drink of it. Let me eat of it. Let nourish my soul, God, that it is done. Let me rest in it. That's why we come to the table. This by no means is an invitation to be lazy and unintentional. Remember, Jesus simultaneously calls us to come find rest in him. But he also says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. We don't pick up our cross to earn our salvation. We pick up our cross because we've been saved. If your heart is heavy, if it regularly feels dirty or unlovable, if you struggle to believe that the cross could ever cover your sins, if you doubt whether a holy God would ever accept you, adopt you, or possibly like you, the Lord invites you to Sabbath rest for your soul. The work is done. It's been completed. The table is set and there's a spot for you. Come and taste and see he is good. Put down your labor. But I, I, I think, put it down. Just set it down. Breathe deeply of the work of God. He loves you and he cares for you. What you think you've done right, what the world thinks you've done right, what your resume says, what you have in your hands, they do not complete you. The work is finished. The better Joshua has already brought you into the promised land. Sit back and see it. It is very good. Just like God sat because it was done, you can sit down and relax because Christ has done it all. The hope is that for just a moment we get so caught up in the pace of life, you just be able to exhale. Even if you can't feel that in the moment, Lord, help me believe that. And I don't, find, I don't feel rested right now. I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like we're on good terms. I mean, I don't, help me rest in you. The point is slow down and see it's done and see that the offer of rest is still offered to you. 
You're like, I'm not in it right now. Pray for the Spirit to help you with that. The offer is there. Jesus did it all. Jesus is enough. There are a couple nuggets that the author has laid upon us in the text so far. The rest of God is not always synonymous with the path of least resistance. And I got to tell myself that. Finding an easy path on earth may lead to missing the eternal rest of God, and that's a terrible trade. Think of the scriptures. What good is it to gain the whole world but lose my soul? What gain is it to get the easiest path and miss the rest of God in the process? Then he teaches us the rest of God is only entered into by faith, a faith that is lived out. And that we can rest in Christ's work like God did over all of creation. Then in light of what we've learned about over the past couple weeks, the author exhorts us, strive to enter this. Fight to lean into it. What he wants us to, to know is it, it, it's, not, it's not automatic. It takes intentionality. It, it, it takes us leaning into the rest of God. And the question may be, well, how do I regularly do that? Chapter 3 and chapter 4 and the rest of Hebrews actually chalked full of helping you learn how to do that. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. How do we strive to enter that rest? Remember, he says, fear that you should miss it. Strive to enter it. How? How do we be careful not to have a hard heart? Because this directive has been given, I think, five or six times now. He tells us in verse 12 and verse 13, as you lean into the word of God, the living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword, word of God. Remember what the author reminded us last week, when scripture speaks, the Holy Spirit is speaking. And that means God the Father is speaking. If you want to strive to enter God's rest, strive to hear God's words. Something is always speaking. Something is always forming you. Something is always begging for your attention and your belief. What you put in has a lot to do with what you will believe. If you want to believe the words of God, put the words of God in your head. You're, That's legalistic. No, it's just the way it is. What you hear the most will form you the most. Do you want the living, active word of God and the spirit of God to, to, to manifest itself in your life? Then saturate yourself in the word of God. Why? Because it will pierce you down to the soul. It will cut you to the core if you ask it and you let it. Here's the line of thought over the past couple sections. Fight a hard heart by considering Jesus. Consider Jesus not alone, but with one another. This will show you who you are by showing you who Christ is and what he has done. Also, don't assume the good news, but fight to lean into it. Fight to enter the rest of God and fight to keep your heart from getting hard. You do this by resting in Christ's work and what he's done for you and by, by continuing to see Jesus through the word of God. This will give you rest, show you Christ, and keep your heart soft. The big 30,000-foot view that the author is pointing us to and calling us to here is look at Jesus together in the word so that you find rest. It's really that simple. Look at Jesus together in the word so that you can find rest. Do this to fight a hard heart. Do this even when things get tough. 
Do this even when you don't see it paying off in the moment. Do this to fight and stay and experience the rest that Jesus bled to give you. We struggle with the word so often because it feels like, like duty and like labor, but the author says it's not about duty, it's about keeping a soft heart. If you want your heart to be pliable, open the word of the Lord. I don't like that. I don't know what to tell you. The statement I don't like that is, is a statement ultimately of what you want most. The word of God will soften your heart. Why? Because it points you to the beauty of Jesus. So fight to stay in it, in community, so that the beauty of Jesus will stay fresh on your heart and your soul. This is what he's saying. Hey, you want, you want to fight a hard heart? Exhort each other in who Jesus is. Encourage each other. Meet together. Read the word. Lead into the rest of God. Lean into faith together. And ask the spirit to work and soften you continually. And here's the beauty. And he will. And he will. This is not a word that is asking for your agreement. This is more of exhortation. Hey, this is the way that we're formed. If you want to walk well, look at Jesus together in the word and find his rest. Band, you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke and he said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the invitation. You do not have to be a member to take. Um, your faith just needs to be in Christ in order to come and take. As you come to the table, I, I don't know where you're at with rest. I, I, I don't know if you feel the rest of God, if you feel weary, if you feel hard hearts just knocking at the door. But it would be a great time in worship before you come up to the table in song to say, Lord, help me experience your rest. Help soften my heart. Help me understand that it's finished. I can't seem to rest. I always have to do more. I believe at a deep level that I haven't done enough and that you can't love me. And that Help me. So that's what you come to the table and take your body and, bro and bro your body and blood has been shed. And that you even tell that to your own heart. God, this is your body and your blood. Help me rest in it. Let me see the beauty of what you've done. There's an offer of rest for you and for me and I need it. I think you do too. So the hope is in worship that you would wrestle with this text. You would ask the rest of the Lord to become real in your life. If you're dealing with a hard heart and frustration and difficulty, the table is also a great place to deal with that. You don't have to have it figured out. Come to the table and say, Lord, help me. I need a soft heart and I've got a hard one. Will you help me see and understand and experience? And if that's still not enough, ask a brother or sister to pray with you. Hey, man, I don't know what's going on. I'm frustrated. I, I don't feel rest. I don't feel joy. I, I don't feel like exhorting each other. I mean, I don't feel rested at all. This is time that we begin to pray with each other. God, will you change that? And I believe that he will do exactly that when you ask. Why? Because he told you he would. Come to me. You'll find rest for your soul. All who are weary and heavy laden and beaten down, who can't feel the rest of God, come bring that problem to him and he'll deal with it. And the hope is that we will find true rest in the true Savior who is better than all things and that no matter how hard it would get, that you would not run the other way, but that you would run at him. And he'll catch you and he'll love you if you do. Would you stand with me? God, I pray that you draw near to us. We need you.
And the need for our soul is to find your rest. Lord, I pray that you silence the million things that are offering us rest today. And we'd find it in you. Holy Spirit, would you show some of us that the work is done? May we be able to put down our labors. Holy Spirit, would you, would you pull off shame like an old garment from us? Let us see the beauty of Jesus and what he has done, that we are loved, that we are cared for, that Christ has done a good work. Man, I pray that you walk us into your rest. Don't let us be like the wilderness generation, so close to you and yet so far away from your rest. Draw us in, Father. Let us see the beauty of who you are and what you've done. We pray that in your name. Come, Lord. And give us your rest. May we worship you and see the beauty of who you are. We pray that in your holy name. Amen.